Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number 24, a show about hard drives, data recovery, forensics, and more. I am Jeff Hallish. I'm here with none other than Scott Moulton from MyHardDriveDied.com. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Jeff? I am doing excellent after our winter storm yesterday. It was, uh, and we, we shoveled ourselves out, but today it's cold, but it's, it's doable. <laughs> it's, it's cold here too. And I'm tired of it. <laughs> Already? I get out, yeah. I want to get outside. It's cold. I know, but we haven't had the storms like you've had. I haven't seen any, we had a little flurries yesterday, but no snow quite yet. So, uh, I still want to escape though. Go to Florida, see some sunshine. There you go. Yeah, I know my parents are down in Florida, and they're probably enjoying it right now. So, well, I tell you what, I know there's a lot of stuff that's, uh, it's been a while since we talked, but there's a lot of stuff going on in industry, but I think there was a lot of emails that we've gotten over the past few weeks that uh, I kind of want to jump into, and we'll we'll answer those, and then kind of deal with some other things that are going on in industry, if that's okay with you. Yeah, perfect. Okay. So, the first email is from John West. It says, is there a way to add an AHCI compatible driver from within Windows? A few times I've seen existing installations of Win 7 with the SATA controller set to IDE compatibility mode. When I switch it, the PC can't boot. I try a startup repair adding the motherboard SATA driver via USB and no luck. I tried booting from automatic startup repair and on that installation of Windows and by running repair Windows option of a Windows 7 boot disk or bootable USB install drive. I'm under the impression that running IDE mode means losing native command queuing and other performance benefits. Any ideas? Thanks for any info. Love the network. John West. Okay, so here's the first thing. Uh, so this is this is like, how many people does it take to change a light bulb? Like, that's not, <laughs> that's not my job. <laughs> so, uh, uh, no, I, it's perfectly fine. Uh, but, you know, that's a tech guy's job. Uh, so I was a tech, you know, from doing managed IT services, repairing computers, doing stuff. That would be a constant normal thing. The majority of my time right now is not reinstalling machines. It's doing the recovery, pulling the stuff off, and doing things. Now, uh, that being said, uh, he's right. If you are only using... Uh, uh, IDE, uh, and you're not using the AHCI driver, which uh, which basically stands for your advanced host controller interface. That's what that's supposed to be stand for, standing for. And it's a combination of settings between the motherboard and your operating system that will then support certain things like native command queuing, hot plug and play, you know, doing a variety of advanced uh, communications and faster uh, communications with your drive. Um, and Microsoft really fix this like if you wanted to switch but it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing right like if you try to switch it first and you don't apply the fix then you can't turn it on and then it doesn't boot so there's kind of a chicken and the egg thing here when i've done it in the past uh and understand what the right way was supposed to do was turn it turn it on uh uh, AHCI, assume you were supposed to turn it on your motherboard then install your os and then install your content uh and it would recognize it at that time and install the correct driver but uh microsoft actually has a tech document that's on this and i just looked it up it was uh uh it's article 92976 so if you go to look at article id on uh support.microsoft.com and do 92976 you'll see that they already have one of their little fix it things where you can click the button and then it applies some registry changes. So there's there's basically two registry changes that have to happen. So while your system's still bootable before you switch to uh, HCI, you 
boot your system, you run the fix, then you reboot, then you set it in in the BIOS, you change it uh, in EFI or whatever, and then you'll be able to boot. But it's a like I said, it's a chicken and the egg thing. It was uh, it was a registry change that you have to be in your system in order to make the change, so you can get back. And there's a lot of tricks. Obviously, there's a lot of ways you could boot on other discs, apply your changes, and do whatever. But uh, just kind of as a quick note, that's that's a quick way around that kind of stuff. Well, and I think we I did get some information from uh, Liam Tidwell who who did document something when he's he's running into this problem. And yeah, exactly what you're saying is the way you have to go about it. And I, and I was able to send this information to John West. But as far as the as far as the um, you know, is there an actual real world difference? Do you think between the two different types of you know between the IDE and the AHCI? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Enough yep. enough that a regular person would see it. Yeah, I, okay. I believe so. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly notice it without a doubt. So depending upon, you know, if I'm imaging a hard drive or copying a hard drive, I see a huge speed increase. And I, it certainly does make a difference for native command queuing and a bunch of other stuff. But, uh, but at least from that standpoint, yes, it, it, I believe that it should just be enabled at this point. IDE is a slower interface, but it's like, you know, going back to... You know, some of the settings that we had before, like PIO mode, makes a huge difference when you go from PIO mode to UDMA mode. And it's kind of the similar thing going from IDE to AHCI. And, you know, again, it depends on your equipment. It depends on what you're what you're plugged into, because it's certainly not going to make a big difference if your drive isn't capable of doing the performance in the first place. But I think overall, you know, you normally would see it. And if you are uh, certainly newer drives that do like native command queuing on normal reads because you don't see native command queuing affecting things like a imaging a hard drive uh because it's doing sequential reads across the disk from lba zero to the maximum lba number so there's no point to worry about native command queuing native command queuing would do something like you've got six requests as you're reading you know your disk it would organize them in a fashion that would be the, from the lowest to the highest number, it would read those in order, cache that content as it's going, and you're always a few megs ahead of where your head is anyway. So the drive would already have done this, uh, reading this content in order that would have made more sense rather than go to the end of the disk and then come back to the beginning of the disk to read something else when it was passing by it anyway. So this is more of a setting when you're in your inside your operating system as far as how it's how it's caching the information or getting the information from one point to another. Well, not specifically. I'm just using that as one example. Okay. Uh, it's, this is there's a lot of other advantages from that standpoint. Um, you know, it it is an advanced uh, host controller f interface from that standpoint. So it is actually organizing other stuff. But th that's just one of the com commands that would be used in that process that would help organize it and run faster in your live operating system. But even if I'm imaging a disk, switching to HCI will actually make a huge difference if I'm if I'm doing it through the interface directly through the hardware. Well, well that's very interesting. Okay, so it it definitely does make a difference is, is what I'm hearing from you. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. But, of course, again, you have to have new equipment. You have to have stuff that's going to support these additional features and this additional speed. So it does make a difference, though. Gotcha. Well, you know, along these same lines, I use a external dock that I plug into my bench machine. And I actually just ordered a USB 3.0 because I'm tired of the USB 2.0. But my older dock has an eSATA controller. The problem is the motherboard that I have, I can't actually switch to a hot swappable drive out of there using the eSATA. 
So I'm kind of, so it's like if I put a drive in there, I have to boot the system and then it wants to boot, try to boot from that drive. And, and so it's really hard to set some of that stuff up. Like you said, if you don't have the right equipment, that'll well, actually do it. I'm just going to say this just because it, it's, it's not supposed to be this way, but hot swap, uh, even though they claim it's supported, everybody I know has trouble doing hot swap with, with SATA hard drives as opposed to SAS hard drives. Now, I understand SATA stole some of the commands from SAS, and so they stole some of the, you know, the settings, the operation. It's actually downwardly compatible, so you could actually use a SATA, control, a SATA hard drive on a SAS controller. But since they stole some of the commands, hot swap was one of the items that was in the list. And I've, I've got to say, even though you turn on these features and you do things, it does sometimes cause the machine to hang or causes something to crash. And I just don't think, uh, you know, there's a lot of other problems that are associated with it. I don't bother to try to run them down. I do typically like say, you know, on my forensics machine, if I'm going to hook something up, I'm not going to normally do hot swap on it and take a chance. So I'll just shut the machine down, disconnect it and do the functions that I'm supposed to. But it's supposed to support it. But I don't know of a lot of people that have had a lot of luck with it actually working on a live Windows local as opposed to a server or something else that might be a RAID array. But uh, I'm just going to say it's supposed to work, but it doesn't seem to work the way it's intended to. Gotcha. Okay, that makes me feel better. So I don't feel as dumb. Um, <laughs> just because I, it was one of those things where I'm like, oh, man, there's got to be a way to make this work. And I just kind of gave up and went, went on with my business and used USB 2.0 which, as we all know, is, is very slow. All right. Let's. Well, there is a huge difference between USB 2 and USB 3 as well because USB 3 kind of developed their own protocol. And, it, and, and not that it's like it, but you can think of it kind of like Ethernet versus, uh, uh, you know, a standard PETA cable or something along those lines. So, you know, when you're starting up and you're using USB 2, it uses the mass storage driver to talk to your drives. It's not the most efficient method. You don't have a lot of, like, communication with your drive that you can do. Whereas USB 3 actually has a communication protocol. You can do tests. You can do a number of other stuff. So it's it's far more robust and more like a hard drive communication than USB 2, which is more like a generic driver. Okay. No, that's a good – I did not realize that there was there was such a uh, vast difference between the two. Okay. Yep. Good. Huge. Very cool. All right. Well, this it, let's go down to the next email. We have uh, another one from John West, and this is going to be more along the lines of of what uh, what you do, Scott. It says, first off, just started listening to the show, Scott and Jeff. I love it. I went and downloaded every episode and have been listening and re-listening on episode 11 at the moment, and I have been taking a lot of notes. I was just wondering, Scott, how do you update the firmware on your hard drives? Do you ever find this to be useful to correct issues with specific models of drives? Thanks for all the info, John West. All right, so uh, you know this goes back to the days of you used to used to go and buy a hard drive off the shelf, and you go talk to your manufacturer. There was actually times where you would make a tech support phone call to your manufacturer because you were having problems with the jumper or something like that. And ultimately, the goal of the manufacturer was to offload all of those phone calls and do everything they could to make it. Uh, to make it the most cost-effective way for them to run their company without you having to make a phone call to them, costing them money. So they did everything they could to remove all the things that would make that happen, like slave drivers and things like like the slave jumpers that would go on the back of the drive. Oh, uh, yes. you know, just, <laughs> just things like that to try to take all that away. So there was a time when people were far more aware of firmware updates on their drives or if there was a problem that we would go to their website and we would look it up. They used to make, and and, and they still do, but they used to make uh, 
a tool that you could download and then you could do a firmware update on your on your drive. And it was much more frequent that we would have done that, you know, in a decade ago as opposed to today. And they still like some of them, like ThinkPads, as an example. If you bought a uh, a ThinkPad, a Lenovo, in their updates, they still do the patches for firmware for the drive. It's part of one of their automatic processes. You'll actually see it happen. But and a lot of drives will have firmware updates. But nobody knows they're out there. Nobody goes and visits the website of their you know hard drive manufacturer anymore. It's pretty rare that we even know that there is a firmware update for our own drive anymore. And you know part of that was so that the manufacturer could remove you know if you had a problem and you brick your drive while you were doing that, then are they liable? Is there some issue with them uh, being responsible for your data loss? And you know, obviously they hate lawsuits. They don't want to go through that. They don't want the phone call. They don't want the cost. So I, I would say unless I know there's a problem or, you know, like for instance, Seagate F3 drives, the ones that came out in 2008, they had a known problem. And if you update them before they die, then it solves the problem and they normally don't die. Uh, so if you did it afterwards, then you're sending off to a data recovery company or trying to deal with it you know, from a very hard scenario. So there are times where that firmware update makes a huge difference. Most of the time, I, I would say, you know, there are some firmware problems and it does cause some corruption and your drive might die, but you probably don't know about it. And so that's the other problem. Um, I, I would say, you know, if you're using a Lenovo and some Dells and you can actually, you know, go to their website, download their drivers, download their updates, it's more likely you're going to be doing it than just, you know, the common, I'm sitting around and I've got my homemade machine. I'm not probably looking at my updates every day. Or there's no automatic tool to go and pull it and say, I have this drive, where's my next update? So, there is some involvement that, that has to happen. I'm not personally running out every day and looking to see which drives that I have that need an update. I am very adamant about backup so that I don't really care anymore. I, I care really less about the equipment. I think of it all as disposable. So in my mind, hard drives, floppies, they're, they're, they're the same. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that, there's a lot of truth to that because I, I've come to that conclusion myself. I'm like, you know, a lot of people could say, well, this is a this is a good hard drive. This is a bad hard drive, you know, and and I think Backblaze just had that article where they were talking about their, you know, and you've yes. already said it on the show about the Hitachi drives were the ones that were lasting the longest in their servers. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and that's a pretty good article as a whole. I think it's pretty on uh, from what we're seeing here in the lab for things that are coming in. Now, only thing I would say is. So when you were looking at it, they really were looking at Hitachi's Western Digitals and Seagate's and. Uh, Seagate, horrible, horrible. Like it was like in the 40% failure rate. It was way up there. And I would say between the 1.5 terabyte and three terabyte, we are flat out seeing that, that the, there's some problems in three terabytes where they just don't respond correctly. And so you can read the sectors if you're using high end tools like we're using here, but they take a really long time. It could take you six months or a year to read the drive, uh, be, just because of how long it's taking for every sector to respond. And I'm not seeing the same kind of problem with Western Digitals and Hitachis that I'm seeing with Seagates. There are some other problems, and I think that Western Digitals' failure rate is higher than what they were seeing on the document, but maybe not much higher. Like uh, a lot of the problems with Western Digital drives are boards, electronics, not that we don't ever have to replace heads, but it's less than it is with Seagate hard drives or something along those lines. And then Hitachis by far. And you know that's the only bad thing to me is that now Western Digital owns Hitachi. 
Um, which you know they they told, they even had a little note in the article that uh, you know they they were asked not to call them Hitachi's. They were told to call them HGSTs. So right. right. Uh, and and so that's that's what they're being referred to now is look for the HGST, which was always a marker on the drive in the first place. But at least from that standpoint, that's that was kind of the line of drives that they're looking at. But I still think that's the best drive made today. And then second, now I'd be buying Western Digital. And then uh, try to avoid, you know, not that I avoid 100% of uh, Seagate drives, but it would be on my list at this point to probably try to stay away from as much as possible. Um, and two and a half inch drives, they are in a whole nother category by themselves. So I don't see the same failure rate. Like they're completely built differently. I don't see those numbers in two and a half inch drives. I only see those numbers in three and a half inch hard drives. Uh, two and a half inch hard drives. Uh, you know, there's somewhat an equivalent number of things that happen across all the brands. Um, and a lot of it has to do with misuse or dropping a laptop or something along those lines. Right. And, and I think, yeah, down in our emails, we're, we're going to get to a question on the difference between two and a half and three and a half inch hard drives. Okay. So I, okay. So let's, uh, let's move it. Now this is a, this is a little bit longer email. It's a two parter, but it was, it was something that we, we kind of talked about on, on Podnuts and Computer Repair podcast. But it was something that, you know, you can kind of, after I read through this, you can kind of say, you know, hey, this is what I would have done in this situation. And hopefully that'll be able to help somebody out. He said, uh, this is from Jack. He said, I was reinstalling Windows 8.1 on a PC that was originally set up as a dual boot with XP. There were some games that did not work in Windows 8. <laughs> to make a long story short, the XP partition was no longer needed. Deleting the contents of the XP partition and trying to expand the Win 8 partition gave me a non-bootable machine. So I proceeded to do a fresh Win 8 install and use the entire hard drive. In the setup for install, I deleted all the previous partitions and inadvertently deleted the partition on a second hard drive that contained all the data, pictures, music, documents, etc. I have ESUS Partition Master as well as Recuva, but the deleted partition is not available to select to scan for the deleted files. I have not done anything to the drive since deleting the partition, so if anything is still there, it has not been overwritten. The drive shows up in a Windows computer management, but says the drive must be initialized before logical disk management can access it. Choices are MBR or GPT, but I am unsure if this is where I should proceed. I do not want to do anything that may hinder any possibility of recovering data. Hope someone sees my post and can provide some insight and solutions. Now let me now let me go into the second email. This is from uh, Jack. Also, here's what he went through, and and I kind of put him in the direction of I think our last podcast where we talked about uh, test disk and, and some of those different things. So he says uh, I've asked a question in the forums as well as emailing you, Jeff. Just wanted to thank you for your assistance. Keep up the informative and entertaining Podnut shows. Thanks for the responses. I had a boot disk with Gparted, which included test disk, which I was unaware of. I ran test disk and reboot, uh, reboot, <laughs> and reboot the Gparted disk, but the drive could not be mounted. Don't recall the exact error message. I then boot with Trinity Rescue Disk to see if there was any utilities on that disk that would be of use. There was a utility that would mount and unmount drives. I ran that, but was unfamiliar with the utility, so I did not know if it had any effect. The last boost boot disk I ran was the Ultimate Boot CD for Windows. That disk has the ESIS Partition Recovery Program. Upon running that program, the previously unrecognized drive was showing as active. I was able to copy all the files over to my C drive as a precaution, but it appears a partition table was restored in all the data accessible again. 
data saved and backed up. This is from Jack Kaplan. So in, in this scenario, after reading all that, what what kind of steps would you have taken in this process? Well, first off, you know, he got a little lucky in the fact that whatever tools, whatever he did at some point uh, did fix or repair whatever the problem was. My first guess is that what it really did, uh, and we don't know all the answers. So these are part of the problem here is that there's, there's not all the things I would normally ask. Like, for instance, if you had a three terabyte hard drive, then your process might be slightly different than it is if it's a two terabyte hard drive. You'd be more inclined to have an MBR on a two terabyte hard drive, but a GPT on a three terabyte. So I don't know. And that's kind of a dangerous area for him, too, because like he said, he doesn't know if he wanted to recreate or fix the partition by doing MBR or GPT. And if you choose the wrong one, there might be some repercussions from that. So, for example, if he had had a partition that had a MBR, then that means that his NTFS volume would be closer to the beginning of the disk. So if you create a GPT structure, it could overwrite parts of the MB, the, the MFT, which is necessary for recovery. So your master file table, which NTFS would have used, uh, would have had two sectors for every record. So every record would be 1024, and it would be overwritten in the beginning by a GPT structure. And so th there could be a problem there. So I don't normally trust anything immediately. So immediately my first job is to say, okay, I probably have a bad drive. And I immediately – like now we know that wasn't the situation here because he tells us he formatted it. He did this whole thing. But immediately drives come through the office. We have a process. The first thing we're going to do is image it so that we're not going to touch the original again and we're going to assume that it's bad. Now assuming that that had happened – and you know, in this case, he's got the original drive and he could actually do the recovery. I wouldn't have bothered probably trying to run anything to repair the drive. The only thing I would have done immediately was I would have made it uh, an additional drive on a machine to do a logical recovery. I usually use RStudio as my first kind of go-to tool just because I don't really have to worry about whether or not it's trying to find the partition structure to repair the structure, it'll look for MFT records, it'll reassemble the content, even if the partition structure is damaged. Uh, all you're looking for is dollar MFT. So you're looking for MFT entries, and they point to the cluster that it exists on the drive, and you can recover all of the data. So I would have immediately just done that, extracted the data, then you could reformat the hard drive and use it for whatever else you wanted to. Um, not that there's not other tools or that there's any problem with necessarily the tools that he used, but I would not ever repair an original disk till I had my data safely moved off or recovered. And so I would have been far more cautious about doing a partition table rebuild or anything else before doing that. I freeze the drive, basically. I don't mean freeze it as in put it in the freezer. <laughs> I mean freeze the drive as in as soon as there's something wrong, no changes are made to that drive, period. It, anything in my office, no matter what it is, comes in the door, we assume immediately. Um, so now it's in a fixed state, and everything will either be right-blocked or will be uh, cloned or imaged, and we will only work from those copies. Um, now, I know, again, he deleted the partition, and he knew that that was his problem, but I still would not have made physical changes because there's always a chance you can't go back to it. And so the safest thing to do is to do your recovery or do whatever else that you can. Even if it's against the original, I would have done everything I could to make sure that there was no changes. Since he had no MBR, it wouldn't mount anyway. So you just don't need to run any tools that will actually make any changes on the drive and it would be safe. And you could do that as a, it's kind of like a poor man's 
write blocker. Okay. Um, the, 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 let me kind of describe that real quick because it might not make sense to everybody right away because there's something you can always do that kind of makes things write blocked. Um, and write block might not be the right word, but in Windows, at the end of the first sector, the MBR, there is the last two bytes are 55AA. And in order for Windows, if you go into Device Manager and you go into Drive Management Tool and you look at it, if you have a drive that's brand new, it's never been initialized, you'll have a red circle on the left-hand side. And you'll have to right-click on that red circle and say, initialize my drive. And what that does is it, it basically creates the first sector on your drive and writes 55AA at the end of the first sector. And that is what lets you then say, okay, now I can create a partition and now I can actually make the partition and format it because it now says my drive is accessible. And so that's the entire point of 55AA is to say to Windows, now I can use this disk. It's been initialized. If 55AA is not there, you can still access the entire disk. It won't show you partitions. It won't show you the layout. It won't show you anything if 55AA has been changed to something like 55BB. And so if you actually have that happen, you will still get a red circle but your data recovery tools can still see the device and everything. It, that's what stops Windows from mounting your drive. And the strange thing is that's a function that happens in the MBR. So the master boot record is the first sector, and it goes all the way back to like 1982, that that master boot record is what then is necessary for Windows or DOS or anything to see the drive. And when we went to GPT structures, so the uh, global unique identifier partition structures, we're supposed to get past our two terabyte limitation. We're supposed to get past all the problems with you know single sector failure. But even in those situations, the GPT structures won't mount and be looked at if 55AA is not in that first sector. Okay. To me, it's strange right off the bat. But that's 55AA is the partition flag slash uh, you know, flag to the OS that I can actually mount and look at this partition structure. So the MBR was all the way up to two terabytes and then beyond two terabytes, they started using the GPT structure. Is that correct? Uh, yes. And that's because uh, you can only store 32 bits inside the partition structure. So in the first sector, in the partition structure, you have 32 bits, which if you uh, figure that out and, you know, two raised to 32, it's going to be, you know, 4 billion something. And then if you divide by two, because you've got 512 byte sectors, you will find out that's two terabytes. So that's why we have a limitation is because in the MBR, you can only point to, and, and you, the way you do it is you point to where it begins, that's 32 bits. Then you point to how big it is, and that's also 32 bits. So you can't point beyond 32 bits. So you cannot point past two terabyte on an MBR in the traditional format without hacking something and making something completely, you know, that's not supposed to work, work. Okay. <laughs> There's ways to do that, but it's just, but that's, but that's entirely the point is that that's our limitation is 32 bits in the MBR. They, they, there's a structure already exists. They didn't want to change the structure. There's not a lot of space there. It's one single sector at the beginning of the disk. And then we had a huge problem, obviously, with uh, you know, there's a whole thing with EFI also that they wanted to get around the BIOS. They wanted to get away from the BIOS and being so tied to a very old, ancient, limited structure. And they wanted to go to EFI, which uh, is extensible firmware interface. And it, 
the accessible firmware interface allows you to do so many other things that you can't do with a BIOS. So your machine could stay alive, it could call home, you could have it's a little mini operating system in and of itself, and it, it can actually run on its own. But then there's a whole other effect that happens with EFI, and we're starting to see that problem now where you can infect the EFI, you can install viruses in EFI, you can do things that no one can make modifications to because it acts like firmware. So there's so there's all these other things that actually affect um, your machine slash tied to your hard drive, but they all go hand in hand. And so when you change your BIOS and you switch to EFI, you also have to change how you're writing your data, what your structure is, uh, and, and what you're going to deal with. So if you're going to do uh, GPT, you need three primary things, which is EFI and a, a 64-bit Windows because it's not supported in 32-bit Windows to do that. And so you know, you're looking at uh, also it would have to be Windows Vista or forward. It won't be supported or isn't supported correctly in XP. So those are the three primary things that you're looking for. Okay. Now, okay, so now go, now my first thought process when he first sent this email was this is the reason that I unplug all my drives except my operating system drive when I'm doing a uh, format. <laughs> or a clone. I mean, if you're cloning something, it's hard to tell. And I've seen people overwrite hard drives with thumb drives and stuff like that happen. Oh. So, so, uh, so yeah, it's, pretty, it's a pretty easy thing to happen. But literally, the second that I think something's wrong – no matter what it is, no matter how quick I need access to it, we immediately stop. We're not going to mess with the drive or try to do the repair. I don't let people, like when we're doing data recovery here, people are not sending us a Mac and we're repairing you know, the existing copy and sending it back out. We're doing a full data recovery and a full reinstall. And so there's a reason for that. And it's because you could have one damaged sector, and it could be in the middle of an important, let's say, Windows DLL file. It will cause your system to crash. It may not crash today. It may crash in 30 days when they get right. it back. But whatever happens, they're going to blame it on you. It's your fault because you missed something or something didn't happen. And uh, so I would much rather prefer to have a full, known, working operating system and only move the data over. And And I understand the point he was trying to do here, but – uh, making changes to existing hard drives that you want to recover data from is a bad uh, practice. You should, if you're going to do this from a business standpoint, I wouldn't even consider it. So it, what you're saying is you would have made an image of the drive and then gone in with the image and then worked on that to get the data back. So in my business practice, because I don't, trust like he sure he said i deleted this partition and it's fine but i don't always trust that the client told me the right thing so immediately we're always going to image if it's a good drive it's going to image extremely fast so you know if it's gonna you know if it's a terabyte hard drive i'll be done in like two hours with an image that's nothing in our, our day-to-day process so that would be a normal thing that would happen um and so i would then just take those precautions if if I knew I had accidentally deleted my own partition and I knew I was going to take an action on it, yeah, what I'd have done is I'd have just pulled out the drive. I would have connected it to another system that we use for data recovery or something else, and I would have just immediately used something like RStudio or something that could crawl through the disk and rebuild uh, the MFT entries and then extracted the data. Because for every file or folder, you only need the two sectors that's the pointer. That has all the metadata and all the structure. So if you have – for each record, it's called a file record. For each record that you have, you could actually have recovered each one of those files individually 
Uh, and I don't need the rest of the structure. I don't read, need the rest of the drive to work or the partition table or any of that stuff to work. All I need is to read the MFT entry, read the two sectors. It will tell me where the data is for that file. I recover that file. That's it. Okay. So, okay. I, I'm seeing. So that, so what is the partition? So when you're creating a partition, that is basically, that is something that the operating system itself sees. Uh, yes. In order for, so it's, you know, it's just saying these are the bounds. That's all it's saying. Okay. It's saying, it's saying, so if you wanted six partition, there's, there's nothing different on the drive from that standpoint. You know, once you've created a partition, then yes, there is a, a marker that's written on the drive in a particular location that says I am NTFS or I am fat or I am something. And then there's a catalog that's stored in there. That's about the files inside of this partition. But it's really just a marker that says, you know, when you say I have four partitions in the MBR, there's going to be four records. Those four records are going to consist of 32 bits for their pointers of where they begin and how big they are. And that's it. That's all that the partition structure exists as. There's nothing uh, other than, you know, active flag, which one's the bootable one. That kind of stuff is there. But fundamentally, there's nothing else that's valuable. And you can literally search your drive for the NTFS signature, find the MFT records, and then it will point to where those locations are. So there's there's obviously there's some things that you can do there that you don't have to worry about what the partition structure is to find your files. So what is our studio? Because I know we've talked about our studio before, and I can't recall off the top of my head. What does that actually do? You said it creates the pointers again so that it can point to the information so that you can. Can you see it in a regular format where you can pull it and actually look at it? Well, it, it doesn't repair what your drive, like your, the point is not to write the data back to your drive or do anything. The point is it will crawl through the drive and it will look for the records that it needs to, to recover this data. And so the, the, one of the main reasons I use our studio is because it supports a huge amount of file systems inside of one tool. So if you handed me a drive and I don't know anything about the drive, I don't know what file system you used. Um, I can use that tool. It will usually tell me if it's a supported file system that it knows. It will tell me right away what is the file system that the MBR says that it has or what is the partition structure if it has one. Uh, or if I start scanning the drive, it will tell me all the records it finds that are associated with each one of the operating systems, uh, the file systems. But if – let's say – Nothing happens. It also has a built-in hex editor. So I can literally right-click on the drive and review it in hex, and I can make the determination myself so I could see, oh, well, it's XFS, and this isn't supported in this tool. So I can immediately see, oh, yes, I do have data. I do know what it is. I can look for a JPEG. I'll know the structure, and then I can start you know, either using a different tool or – you know figure out if there's a solution that I can do inside of our studios. It's not my only, like in other words, I'll use any tool that I need to, to get the job done and as quickly as possible. But it is kind of my first stop just because it has so much built into the same tool that I seldom have to go outside that tool unless it's abnormal, unless it's something that's unusual. Okay. No, that's a good point. Yeah. Cause everybody's looking for, you know, where, where's my starting point to, you know, now when you're, when you're doing this now, our studios is not, it's just looking through the drive. Is it, is it actually changing anything? Or are you talking about an image of the drive the image of the information that you're going through and, and creating the pointers to point to file systems? So our studios is not making any changes. There's no, that's, okay. that's, that's the rule of if you're calling something data recovery, then 
and and anything because you know as a forensics guy the worst thing you can do is change the existing data like that's that is just the fundamental no you never do it you never change the drive that you're working on you do everything you can to prevent 100 percent of the changes because you can never roll back that's the real problem is some of these things that make changes, it's impossible to go back. So if I go run, you know, check, check disk on the drive and scan disk kicks off and it, and it corrects something, uh, the chances of me reversing that process are slim and none. And so your whole job is to freeze the state that it's in. You don't want to make any changes. And so I am super overly cautious. doesn't matter if it's my stuff, it's somebody else's stuff, doesn't matter what it is. I treat everything as if it's gold. I do not make changes. And so our studio is an interface. It's a little ugly interface, but it's very functional interface once you know how everything is laid out. But fundamentally what happens is you see the drive, you see the partition, you see the structure, you see anything that's there. Uh, you can right-click, you can scan, it can actually search for the MFT entries, it can search for FAT tables, it can search for HFS, so it can do Mac. Uh, it can do, uh, it's got like uh, support for like 10 or 12 uh, file systems right off the bat, so it'll support, um, you know, uh, X, uh, EXT4, it'll support EXT3, so you can do your Linux recoveries, you can do your HFS recoveries for your Mac systems, you can do UFS for uh, Linux or or Unix volumes. So all of that stuff is all included in the same interface. And like I said, the most awesome thing is the hex editor that's actually in it is actually a pretty good hex editor uh, for built into a tool. I am very impressed with it. I've I've used a lot of other hex editors like WinHex or Xways Forensics, which are both the same product basically uh, with different levels of support. And that would be my go-to tool 99% of the time would be to use uh, WinHex or Xways. And this tool for a quick and dirty and get into it and do things inside of our studio, very impressive um, that you can just hop right into the to a file, into a drive, see the content, deal with it. And it's very important if you're going to do RAID recoveries uh, because it also does a RAID rebuild as well. There's a whole set of functions there for reassembling a RAID both manually and automatically. Uh, it's added a few features in some of the new versions to start searching for things automatically, which was never there before. Um, so it's it's an incredibly helpful tool, and it's an amazing price. Uh, for a home user or somebody who's just supposed to be using it for themselves, it's 79 bucks. And so I don't think that there's a tool that's a better value than that for $79. Now, as a technician, you're supposed to have a technician license. Technician's licenses are normally about $800. Um, I'm a reseller, so I can do it for like 600. But fundamentally, uh, there are some other things that are added to that, which give you an interface. Like we've talked about the Deep Spar before, right? Um, our, our studios has a direct interface to the Deep Spar equipment, and so over a network, it can actually talk to it raw and then download the data directly from the Deep Spar while you're doing the recovery. Okay. Now, I just want to clarify because I'm I'm trying to get this right in my head. So I understand everything that you said. Now, when you're doing, when you're using something like our studio, are you going to do it on the original drive or you're going to do it on an image of the drive? My personal opinion is everything here in my office, we work on a clone. It's almost never gotcha. the original drive. Uh, the only time I would say I would work on original drive, because understand if you touch a sector and it's damaged, you may only get lucky enough to read it once. So when you're doing that process, you want to make sure that you're building a clone, a backup of that content, because... A lot of tools, when you start to do a data recovery, a lot of them will scan your hard drive and they'll try to build a tree. 
and then they'll show you from the directory tree what it is you can recover. And the downside is they have touched all the sectors on your drive at least once, but did not copy them. And that's very dangerous. Um, now, our studio has a function where it can image and build the tree at the same time. So it can clone the sectors. It's the only there, there's there may be a handful, but there's a there's not very many forensics tools slash data recovery tools that actually clone and build a tree at the same time while they're scanning. Uh, most of the time, you're doing them as two separate functions. A deep spar okay. as a piece of hardware is an exception. It can actually clone and scan at the same time, so there actually is a process there as well on the hardware side. But from a seventy-nine dollar tool. There is an advanced feature. Most people won't find it when they're, you know, when you're looking for it. But is it's a it's hidden in an advanced tab that you can actually image, scan, and build a tree at the same time. And so that way, if I had, if somebody brought the drive in and they said immediately, like, "Hey, I must get payroll files by tomorrow at noon," then I may have to work on the original one, or I'm not going to get paid if they don't get their payroll files by noon tomorrow. So I don't have two hours to waste a day for it to image, or I don't have. You know, it's it's it it's as a rule of thumb. I normally try to never do that, but there are occasions where you know money speaks louder than time. So, right. <laughs> so so at least from that standpoint, I would normally not throw throw caution to the wind. But if tomorrow at noon I don't have the payroll files, then I'm not going to get paid anyway, and they'll just key it in or figure something else out anyway. And so that may be a time I have to work on the original hard drive, and then. This process would be fine. You could scan the hard drive. You could do everything. The worst thing is, is that most of the time when you plug in a Windows drive into the system, it's going to mount it. If it sees 55AA in the in the beginning of the MBR, it's going to mount it, and then we'll start kind of doing that flipping through. Hey, here's some files and some directories, and if the disk is damaged, that may cause a problem. In this particular instance, he didn't have a partition structure, so. It, it wouldn't have mounted it. It wouldn't have done anything. And so you could just scan the drive, do the recovery, spit the files back out. Okay. So now, so when you're plugging, okay, so let's say you're trying to get, you're trying to get data files back from a drive and you plug it into, I don't know, a, a you know, a dock of some sort that's hooked to the computer or, you know, directly to a SATA connector on the, on the, you know, your bench machine. So is it, is that a bad thing to do? as far as trying to, you know, trying to look at the drive initially, or is there a way that you can work around that? Yeah, uh, it's a bad thing to do. Uh, and the reason I say that is because if the partition structure is there and you have damaged sectors in the rest of your drive, as soon as it sees it, it's going to try to mount it. And there's a chance that Windows is going to try to run through. And it does make changes to your drive just by the fact that it's mounting it. It will change MFT records, dates and times. It'll look at security descriptors. It does a few things. So here's my suggestion if you want to not do that. Uh, there's two ways that you can do it. You can do it the poor man way. And you can do it the <laughs> the rich man way. Uh, the the rich man way is buy a write blocker. So that would be the one that at least involves some money. It could be anywhere from fifty dollars to three hundred dollars, depending on what quality write blocker you buy. But a write blocker is basically most of the time it's either an inline device for your SATA connector or an inline device for USB or FireWire, and you connect your drive to it. And it stops changes from being made to the drive. So its entire job is to block writes from your computer as it's looking at it. So you could do that. That would be if I had to work on an original drive here, that's what I would do. I would plug it into a write blocker. The poor man way, what you can do, you can use a free tool 
called MHDD. So Dimitri wrote this tool called MHDD, which is uh, a diagnostics tool. It is a DOS tool. And what would happen is you would have to plug this into a motherboard and it be connected. You could just, and it could be anything. It could be a you know $40 motherboard with nothing. It could be an old machine that was sitting in the corner. As long as you can connect the drive to the controller on the motherboard, you could start up this. There's uh, MHDD is also included on the Ultimate Boot CD. So the Ultimate Boot CD, which was uh, mentioned by Jack Kaplan, uh, it's a free download. And then you just boot on this CD. And then you go down to Disk Diagnostics. Then you go all the way down to the bottom where it has MHDD uh, 4.6 is the version that it'll have on it. You execute that. And it, you'll get this DOS tool that will run. One of the commands in there is, uh, and it'll say 55AA. It'll say, uh, you know, manually disable 55AA or whatever it is. Because your problem is you could use a hex editor in Windows to change 55AA to something else, but in order to get it into Windows, you've got to plug it in. Right. So you're in that same problem, right? Right. Uh, so if you use a DOS tool, you could use a DOS hex editor, you could use a number of other tools, but it's already built into MHDD. It would take you less than 30 seconds to do it. You could plug in your hard drive to the motherboard, boot on this raw motherboard. I mean, I literally, my lab is literally just made of motherboards everywhere. Like, I don't buy cases. I just have a power supply hanging off of a motherboard like 99% of the time. There's no cases, nothing involved. I'm just literally plugging cards in, unplugging stuff all day long. And I use a motherboard like, you know, most people would, you know, just use any other kind of adapter that they're plugging into. Okay. So now you, so you could actually now, so if you go into ultimate boot CD, let's say you're using a bench machine and, and you, you lo- you go into ultimate boot CD and that's your operating system. Are you, so you, if you plug the, if you plug the, um, the, the drive into that, into that motherboard or into that, that computer, is it still going to do the same type of thing? Or is this just a, we're worried about it in windows. It's going to automatically mount it. Well, in DOS, it's not going to automatically mount it and go anywhere uh, unless you specifically do something. Okay. So it's kind of – it's not specifically being a right blocker, but it is a poor man's right blocker because DOS will take no action unless you manually took action on something. So uh, so if you boot on the Ultimate Boot CD, it's going to have – it's kind of a little mini operating system on the CD-ROM that's basically right. a men- menuing system. And then – you hit MHDD and it will then drop to this DOS tool and it will then see the drive in line. Then you can actually make the modification and it'll change 55AA to something else when you actually hit that button so that it'll stop uh, the machine from seeing it in Windows. So you could change it, then take it over to the Windows machine and then you could do your recovery and it would be a poor man's right blocker because it wouldn't do any changes to the drive unless you specifically like opened a hex editor and modified it. Gotcha. Okay, that's great. So, but you said a, a right blocker. If you wanted to do something where it's just in line with the SATA controller, you, those are fifty to three hundred dollars. Yeah, uh, you know, Tableau is one of the biggest ones that's out there, and so they'll sell like kits for everything. So, uh, I have a variety of them from USB right blockers all the way through to you know SCSI and SATA right blockers. So they can be expensive for a good high end one with a nice little digital display, but you can buy just an inline board that's a right blocker and I bought those for like 50 bucks. The only thing is they they're not great quality so they don't last a really long time so you know they can short out and fry uh but 
you know, for 50 bucks for having them around the office, you know, at least, you know, for, a, you know, a year or so, they'll probably survive just fine. So if I'm using an external dock to do data recovery or, you know, even a poor man's data recovery, obviously not doing what you're doing. So I can get a right blocker that will go in between my USB cable and the actual computer. Yes, sir. And then go, okay, that's, that's awesome. Or I can get one that goes between the SATA controller, between the SATA cable and the, and the drive itself if I'm plugging directly into the motherboard. Yeah, you can actually do, uh, so there's, there's one for almost everything at this point. So you can go USB to anything you can, I mean, you could even go USB to SCSI if you wanted to, uh, you can do firewire to anything. So the same thing there. There's a, there's also a rare thing, which is firewire to firewire. Just so you could actually do like, you know, we have to repair a Mac and you can boot and you can hold down T and it turns itself into a firewire slash uh, thunderbolt, uh, uh, mass storage device because it turns into an external hard drive when you do that uh i don't know if you've got any mac experience but that's what happens if you hold down t when you boot the instead of booting the operating system it becomes an external hard drive and okay it's a firewire it's a well it's the basis for it is firewire but which is also a thunderbolt so you can plug in a firewire to firewire write blocker so you could plug it into another mac or any other machine, and it'll actually do FireWire to FireWire. You have to use a FireWire to Thunderbolt converter, okay, to to get it to Thunderbolt on some of the newer Macs. But uh, at this point, it's just a bunch of converters to take FireWire into the machine, and it becomes a mass storage device. And so they have those, um, and then they also have like regular inline ones. You can do you know PETA to SATA. You can do you know all the conversions that you can think of. There's one for everything, and then there's just USB, which there'll be a, a several versions of USB. You can either do some that are like a thumb drive that'll do a right blocker and a thumb drive. Uh, you'll find those you know typically uh, like Weeby Tech. Weeby Tech will sell uh, sell those things, which is a uh, CRU Dataport, I think is the company now. And then there's the higher end ones that will actually like Tableau sells one that has a little uh, LED interface so that when you plug in your device, it actually identifies it, tell you how many sectors it is, you know, and does everything it can to stop any changes from being made. Very cool. Well, this is great information because this is not something, you know, I'm thinking when I'm trying to get data back, obviously I'm not doing it for forensics. I'm just doing it to get, uh, you know, pictures and stuff back. But if you're, but as far as what you're talking about is, is not damaging the drive because you're, you're not letting it do anything. Right. That is the point of all of it. Yep. So no, that's, that's a great point. Okay, great. I've got some new information that I'm going to definitely check out uh, our studio and, and I'm going to get me a couple inline bright blockers. Definitely do that. And I'll, I definitely will try the MHDD too. Cause I, that's, that's just, I, I, see, I'm lazy it's, though. I, yeah. I, I want to, I just want to plug something in. <laughs> well, I mean, the nice thing, once you once you use MHDD once or twice, I mean, it's an old tool. It'll never be updated again. Uh, Seagate bought it and shut him down basically okay. uh, like a decade ago. And so it's never going to be updated. There's never going to be changes to that. But at least from that standpoint, it's a free tool. It's an easy, quick way to get something done. And a lot of people can't even remember how to do anything in DOS anymore. But, uh, but you know, it's there's, there's so many more advantages to doing a recovery under DOS than there is in Windows. Uh, but, you know, there's a huge disadvantage, which is speed most of the time. Right. You don't, you don't have any drivers. You don't have anything running in between. So, you know, at least from that standpoint, um, you're, you're going to be really slow. But ultimately, it will so- solve a money problem. Gotcha. Okay. No, this is great. 
Very cool. All right. Well, let's let's move on down to another email that we have. And I know I know you've talked about this on on other shows, or I've heard you talk about it before. But I figured I'd bring it anyways, just to kind of give you you know get an update on it. it. Says Jeff, just wondering what Scott's view is on Spinrite. We have used it to recover data several times and bring computers back to a bootable state. Just see what he thinks about using it, and from a data recovery standpoint. Thanks, Jason Miller. So, um. I have talked about it on many shows and written things about it and you know people people do use it and those people sometimes like it. My opinion is it's a very dangerous tool to use. Uh, calling it data recovery is the wrong word and he should go out there and make the tool so that it writes to a second hard drive because currently what it does is it reads the same hard drive it tries to get around problems that you have reading a sector by doing some ECC tricks and trying to do some some other items by moving the head back and forth, but it grinds on a single sector. It can be the last time that you see a disk. You don't have, like I said earlier, you may only have one good chance to read a sector. You should not be writing that back down to the same hard drive, and that's what it does. And so it gives people the wrong impression. It doesn't repair the hard drive. What it does is reads the sectors, mark something bad, try to move the data that would have been in that location to another sector or a reallocated sector, which also does uh, – every hard drive has a limited amount of space for reallocated sectors. If you fill up that space with reallocated sectors, then your drive won't even work in many cases at all. So I'm going to say it's an extremely dangerous tool, and I think everybody who hears this should send a note to Steve Gibson. It might actually be a good recovery tool if it would write to a second hard drive. I can't even – I can't – because of my whole thing, I do not condone making changes to a disk. I will not use it, and we will not use it in any lab or any class unless it writes to a second hard drive. And I know what it does, and it's like a – it's a – it's again – a cheap version of what a DeepSpar does at a very high end. So a DeepSpar being a, a controller and hardware that does some things that, you know, it's $3,500, you know, his $89 tool or whatever it is, if he could write that to a second drive, it may take a long time for it to do the process, but it may actually be successful. And in a cheap situation, it might be a very worthy tool. But I do not condone him calling it data recovery because it's not data recovery. It is repairing the same drive. When people are done with it, they have this impression that, oh, yeah, now my drive booted again. Now I can use it again. Your drive was bad. It had problems. It did have errors and was redirected to a redirected block, which means you're using up not only uh, space in the system area, you're also causing other damage from where that head might have been moving back and forth over the same sector that was grinding on it to recover that data. So I'm just going to say it's it's a it's a terrible way to go, and I think everybody should, you know, because I think he has something that could be worth something, but I can't even consider it if it's going to make a change to the drive. So everybody should call him. Everybody should blast him with letters. I've tried to contact him for a decade to try to have this discussion with him online, and he would not have this or hasn't called me back. And, and I can't get an answer from him. He's living on a 10-year-old tool, by the way, or a 30-year-old tool, actually, because it was made for MFM and RL drives. And what he did was only update it so that it would actually work on uh, the SATA interface slash IDE interface. Gotcha. So now, so if a person was to use, if they wanted to repair the original drive, could they make an image of that drive first and then go ahead and try to use something like Spinrite to repair the drive? Or, well, or that's not you, even worth it? 
Well, now if you were already if you already made an image of the drive, if you were successful at doing that, and, and this is one of those areas where what his tool does, as I said, was very similar to what a deep spar does. So those sectors that can't be read that you normally would not be able to image, uh, so, you know, Windows tools won't work. Uh, Windows tools time out after 600 milliseconds, so you can't use a Windows tool unless it knows how to talk to ATA command sets. Uh, you're 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 very limited on what you can do when you have damaged sectors, and this is where the deep spar and some of the higher end tools are very very powerful and very useful at recovering those sectors that can't be read any other way. And his tool attempts to do those things, and I'm okay with that process. Just I'm not okay with the fact that he grinds on a single sector. He doesn't go and get the good sectors and come back and look at the other sectors. I have a huge number of things that I would talk to him about, but the main thing is it has to write to a destination, not on the same source. Gotcha. So actually grabbing that information, putting it onto a secondary drive is what you're saying. Yes. Needs gotcha. that apps. Like if he just did that update, it might actually be a very useful tool. The second thing I would tell him is, make a small table and track what sectors he's doing. And the ones that are taking too much time, skip them, do all the other ones so that, you know, you're not grinding on a windows system folder when the, my documents folder is out there that might actually be in good shape and you do damage to the drive so that no one can read anything else from the drive. Again, we get a number of drives that the last thing that happened was somebody ran spin right on them and it killed them by, you know, grinding into the disk where there was some damage by doing the same thing over and over again 20,000 times. And I just don't find that acceptable. Um, you know, one of the things that the, the deep sparse job, when the deep star is trying to do this recovery, as it runs across the disk, if it takes too long for a single sector to respond, it considers later on, I'll come back and get that. Let's go get all the good stuff first. And then after we've gotten a majority of the drive, then we'll come back and we'll work on the ones that were missing. And I don't think those would be huge updates for him to actually do. Uh, I, I semi understand why he doesn't write to a destination disk. And that could be because there's, you know, this whole issue, like we said earlier, when you clone a drive or you're, you know, even cloning a memory stick that people could write it to the wrong thing. It's very easy to do when you're in a DOS interface and you don't see what the drives are. People who used Ghost know exactly what I mean. Back in the day, if you used Ghost to image a drive and you had two drives that were similar size, it was incredibly difficult to know which one was the real one, the source that you wanted to copy. And if you hit the button wrong, well, you just overwrote the oh. good drive with the bad drive. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's funny because I just, I just, like I said, I just bought a, a USB 3.0 dual drive duplicator from StarTech. And whether they're any good or not, I don't know. I was really looking for the USB 3.0 because, like I said, my my drive my USB uh, drive now dock is uh, USB 2.0. But the reason I got it, if I was going to use it as a, you know, a, a way to clone the drive, because you don't have actually have to have it hooked up to a Windows computer, it, it, it was one of the only ones that actually had which slot was which, and it had an arrow pointing from, and I think <laughs> one says source and one says destination, which I was like, a lot of the other ones didn't. They were right. like drive one and drive two and don't mess these up and but they're in backwards order and it's like uh no I need something dead simple where I go this is where, where this is where the source disk goes this is where the destination goes and I hit the button and done <laughs> I I understand a hundred percent you know it's a uh, a lot of forensics tools a lot of the high end forensics imagers you know that is the point is that they do some imaging they give you a lot of feedback. And they have, you know, a process that's always the same. And it makes a huge difference in your day-to-day -day life when you can just go drop two drives in and hit a button and not have to worry about it. 
but uh, I don't I don't use any of the low end ones like the ones that you're using, so I don't really know, you know, how successful they are when they fail. What happens? I have heard some fail conditions where you know they run into some bad sectors they can't complete, or do they finish the partition structure? But I have some high end ones that I use that are very expensive. And so, you know, I, I do do those on a daily basis. It would be a constant thing that I do. So I, I feel your pain. I know <laughs> how valuable it is to be able to do that. So you can report back later on how successful uh, your version is and if you have any failures. Yeah, I'll let you know because my understanding was the other reason I bought this one is they said specifically that it would actually clone it even bad sectors. So it, would, it, it wouldn't actually stop like, in, you know, an Acronis or something like that would mm-hmm. stop if it runs in that. But we'll see if it works or not. I don't yeah. that wasn't my only reason for getting it, but I figured I'd, you know, spend a few more dollars well, to get something like that. So. If it has bad sectors, see my problem with it is does it tell you anything? Does it let you know in any way that it had some bad sectors and that you may be missing some data, that there's a problem? I mean, there's a whole list of things that can happen, but my first cautionary note would be the second that it says, "Yes, we can clone it even if it has bad sectors." Well, that that's that's a fail right away because that's not that's not plausible. Uh, not, f- not for that tool, probably. Gotcha. So it's, it, it's not plausible as far as what it is. Well, it's not going to recover the data. It may recover from the failure. So it's not going to image or copy the sectors that are bad. It's probably not even going to try more than one or two passes at that. Right. It's, because, because this device normally, these devices would be using an embedded Linux. And so that means that they're using one of the tools out there. That's a common tool. So it's either using uh, DD rescue or a variation of DD, and if it gets a timeout in an, in a sector, all it does is uh, just skip to the next one. So as soon as it can return, it can skip to the next one. But not all drives can do that. Not all drives have some drives like the head will timeout and it'll never return. Then it'll just fill it with zeros from there to the end of the drive. So I would oh, be concerned. Okay. I would be concerned that as soon as it hits a bad block, so so the only condition you know that it works is when it's all good. Like if there is a bad, if there's ever a bad and, you know, I don't know if it gives you a red light or whatever else it does, but the second that you get bad, then you don't know from there to the end of the drive what you have. Gotcha. Okay. That's a good point. Yeah. I'll definitely check into that. And I actually have some old drives sitting around that were bad drives. And so I'm going to test them out with those and see if I can actually get it to copy or, you know, what, what I can actually get from those drives. So, all right. Well, very good. All right, so we have one more email, or actually one more email and another question. Okay. This one says, I'm sure this would be for Scott Moulton. I'm wondering if a laptop hard drive with adapter would provide any advantage if a desktop hard drive were being replaced. I'm thinking that with all else being equal, storage, cost, speed, etc., and the nod would go to the smaller drive. I would expect it to be longer lasting due to being built to resist vibration more and having less mass spinning. I have no evidence to support my theory, but thought it might be worth some discussion. Thanks for the quality shows. Keep up the good work. Chris Ferguson. So I agree mostly with what he says here. Uh, they they are more tolerant. They're built to withstand more vibration. The Normally, like a lot of three-and-a-half-inch drives, the full desktop versions, don't even have uh, – an accelerometer to shut themselves off. So in other words, they're falling over. They don't know they're falling over. They do know in some cases there's vibration. They can detect it, but in many cases don't turn themselves off, which laptop drives do. 
Okay. If they, if they detect that they're falling and that it seems like uh, there's an accelerometer measures velocity and it'll actually know and it turns itself off. Uh, so there is, there is, you know, some truth to that. Now on the downside though, most of the time a laptop drive is a slower drive. So it's not, you know, your fastest drives are going to be in your desktop versions. And there may be a little bit of trade-off depending on, you know, an older desktop versus a newer laptop. There may be some speed differences or solid-state disks, so obviously, or caching. If there's any solid-state caching or more RAM, uh, it may be, there may be some differences that you can trade off there depending upon, you know, 64 gigs, uh, you know, 64, I'm sorry, 64 megs of RAM on a drive versus, you know, uh, two megs of cache on a drive. But th so there are some trade-offs, but I would say, generally speaking, laptop drives um, that because of their size and because they are smaller, that you have a smaller amount of space that's being worn more often. So it is more likely that if you were going to try to throw that into a server, that it's going to be worn out faster than a three and a half inch disc will be where there's actually a more aerial density uh, amount of space. There's a larger aerial space that you can read and write to because that's one of the biggest factors with the disc is your fastest location on your disc is the outside edge of the platter. And on a two and a half inch disc, you have already lost an inch. So you've already lost half an inch on each side of where your sectors would be. But you know, typically it will be a more durable drive, but probably for a shorter period of time. It's not meant to last, you know, five years necessarily full time. Um, they really optimize those things for power consumption and to turn themselves off. So they do protect themselves in that way. But if you're running it 100% of the time, all the time, like in a raid, I would expect that those would probably die faster. It, one of the thoughts that, that came to my head when I was reading this email was that are, are the smaller drives, do they create more heat than the bigger drives because of what you were talking about? No, no. I, I definitely think a larger drive is going to create more heat. There's more okay. surface area. There's a larger the, – the disks are going to be a, a thicker disk also because now if you're talking about you know a 2-terabyte, 3-terabyte, 4-terabyte drives, you're also talking about because they're storing data perpendicular that their disks are much, much thicker. And and your three and a half inch versus a two and a half inch, your two and a half inch may be doing perpendicular as well, but there are a lot thinner platters. There's a lot less mass moving as he described. Okay. Um so so there is that, but and but they're more likely to also turn themselves off in between reads and writes. But if you uh, you know, because they do spend down and park a lot, so they do everything they can. If they're not in use for a certain amount of time, they're eco-friendly. Save some battery power on your laptop and spend down. But if you threw them in a RAID array and you kept them active all the time, well, that's not really what the intent is. And gotcha. Okay. You know, that's why you're not running your servers with two and a half inch drives. But uh, but I just don't expect that a, a two and a half inch is going to last the period of time that's going to be required. Okay. No, that's fair enough. That yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, I, Chris, I hope that answers your question. And uh, yeah, I, I would guess that desktop hard drives are made for desktops, which are not moving around or getting knocked over. And laptop hard drives are made for laptops for, like you said, power consumption. And if they do get dropped, of course, I, most of the time when people drop their laptops, I'm usually replacing their hard drive. But you know, <laughs> that's another yeah. story. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, and there's always potential that a head's going to hit the platter. It might still survive and it might still be runnable, but you know, you, you can usually tell if you image the whole drive because you'll have some errors and if you have any errors at all, it's probably time to consider another drive after it's been dropped. Okay. You know that and we we've got another question, but I'm 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 thinking when you use something like a 
crystal disk info for you know just checking the status of the drive, checking the smart status on a drive. This is one of the things I've often often looked at. You'll get you know either you know green you're good, yellow is a caution, and red is obviously there's there's bad sectors. I where do you stand on as far as you're getting yellow on that particular tool? Is it well? All right, so let's back up a second and let's talk about <laughs> smart for a second because. Uh, smart is self-monitoring analysis reporting technology, and it's gotcha. supposed to monitor the status of the drive. But it's completely up to the vendor how they want to do it okay. and what they want to do. There's there's actually no perfect standard that says you must do this and every manufacturer must follow this. So you've got to take the results a little bit with a grain of salt. It's like it's not a perfect. It's it's you know they basically will count like the first six or seven things that are basically the same will probably be the same amongst other vendors, but there's no guarantee that they're accurate or that they're written at times. Um, I would say if you get something that says, oh yeah, I have, you know, 700 reallocated, well, yes, that's probably, you know, a time to do something about that drought. Like immediate, like even if you have 10, I would probably be considering, well, now we're starting to head into some possible problems. There are some errors though, that will increase that account, e- that count, even though there's not any actual errors, it'll increase it. Then it'll come back and check them later or move some data around. There's kind of like a dead man search that happens. So sometimes it's not a hundred percent accurate, even when you see those numbers. Okay. So, so there is extended smart tests and they're pretty thorough. And so until you run the extended smart test, I don't know that I feel like that quick test that it does is accurate at all. And like you said, you're getting, you know, green, red, yellow, uh, you know, uh, what does that mean? Right. Well, your guess is as good as mine because there's, <laughs> there's no, there's no accuracy in any of that information. And they're only looking at like a handful of things at best. Right. And, and I will take those drives that are, you know, when I see that in crystal disc info, cause I just use it as, as a quick check when I'm running my tools just to see what's going on, you know, with the drive before I do a virus remover or whatever. A lot of times I'll, what I'll do is I'll pull those drives and actually do, you know, extended tests using, you know, Seagate tools or something like that on there just to see what's going on. So, and you, the reason I ask is because a lot of times the drives come back fine on the extended tests and I'm like going, okay, so do I tell my customer it's bad or well, do I err on the side of, you know? I, well, like 99% of the time, all it's doing is saying, all right, so you've got some reallocated blocks. So you had some sectors that didn't respond correctly. So we've you know reallocated those to the system area. And so it just takes a pointer and points to the system area. And you'll see a little bit of a decrease in speed as well because it has to turn off ahead, turn on ahead, go to the system area, read it, return. So there's a problem there from that standpoint. And that's probably all it is because that's almost all those tools are measuring is whether or not you had any reallocated blocks. So okay. There's obviously a chance that your drive is going to have, you know, a death sooner or later, but it will actually image correctly because the reallocated blocks will image correctly. Uh, You will have had some sectors that would not have been able to image correctly, but because the drive reallocated them, they're going to appear fine. Right. Okay. So, yeah, definitely, definitely image your drive on it. All right. So I think the last question for the day is, and this is, this comes from Kerry Holzman. It was a question him and I were talking and he had just asked me this is there any way to know if a flash drive or ssd is getting power if it's not working because we were talking about it and he said you know you know when you when you plug a spinning drive in obviously you can you know you can feel it spin up and you can feel that it's it's coming on and and it's doing something with an ssd you you can't so how do you know when you're plugging in the drive maybe you're just not getting a, a bad usb port on the computer or 
you know, a bad SAT report or whatever, other than, you know, obviously moving it from from point to point. Is there any way or is there any tool that can tell you, yes, this drive is working, but there's problems with it, et cetera? Well, all right. So the answer is yes, there are tools and they're on the high end and they're going to okay. be expensive. They're not going to be <laughs> your normal thing. The, the only other way you can know is by power consumption. So uh, there are tools that are for hard drives to you know, for you to be able to tell what the power consumption is. So they have power monitoring tools and they're built into a lot of the high end tools. So the deep spar has it, the, uh, Tola has it, the PC 3000, all these tools have a way of measuring the power consumption. So you can tell whether or not it's active or not. Um, but the, the crux of the matter is, is you can do this with an actual meter. Like you can literally like, you know, use a meter. It won't give you a graph or a chart like the others are doing because the others are just taking the numbers and then plotting them. And so if you were going to do it with a meter, you would actually have to connect it to the pins for power and you on a, on a, you know, depending on what it is, but most of the time, the majority of it's going to be five volt channels. You're going to be monitoring what the power consumption is and it's going to go up and down according to the use of the drive. So if the drive is doing something, power consumption goes up. When the drive goes to sleep, it drops almost to nothing. It drops to almost a sleep mode and it's pretty low. But, you know, your options are literally to go, you know, get your Radio Shack meter and to go and measure as you're going across your device, you're measuring for activity. Uh, There are transient voltage suppressors. There are suppressors on, and what that means is they're kind of like fuses. Okay. Um, When you plug in a hard drive and it doesn't spin up, sometimes what it is is this fuse blue. And so it might be something very simple. It's uh, there's two on a normal three and a half inch drive. There's two of them. There's a five volt and a twelve volt. And if they blow, they short. So you can remove them. They actually you can just rip them off, and your drive will work. So in a lot of cases, if you get no activity at all, that's what it is. And the same thing exists on solid state drives. But solid state drives are far more sensitive, and there's far more things that can go go wrong, just completely wrong. And so it's a lot harder to detect, but the only way that we are doing it is to literally use a meter and try to meter stuff out to see if there's any voltage passing across it. Okay. That's a, that's a, okay. That's a good tip there. I, I'm not sure, you know, how, if, if somebody's going to, yeah, how yeah, feasible right. it is for, for people to do that. But it is, it is one of those things, you know, I think a lot of us, a lot of times if a drive doesn't turn on, we just go, yeah, you need to replace your drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that may be true, but if it doesn't turn on, if it doesn't spin at all, like I said, most of the time it's a fuse, right. and they're, they're usually next to power, and they're two little black squares, and uh, I have some of this in some of my uh, my podcast, like even some of my uh, presentations where I've done some, like uh, DEF CON and things like that, I, I show a picture, I show you where where it is and what you can do. Okay. Uh, but when a drive doesn't spin up at all, and you get nothing, that no sound, no humming, no nothing... It is most of the time that means there are transient voltage suppressors on your PCB board, and they're very easy to get rid of. And whatever caused the problem will probably cause the problem again, so you don't want to use the same power supply. You don't want to use the same computer to recover the data. But, you know, literally, you can rip these things off. Okay. Well, that is a good tip. Okay, very good. Excellent. 
All right. Well, I have we covered. Uh, I think we've covered a lot of emails and stuff today. Is there anything else that you wanted to to talk about, or anything else that's going on as far as uh, you know in the industry, as far as hard drives and stuff? You know, I, I think the biggest thing was just that report the other day where they were, you know, again reporting how many dead hard drives and what the percentages were, and trying to stay away from Seagate hard drives and things. I think that's probably the biggest news that we have today, and we covered some of these while we were talking through the uh, through the emails as well. So uh, right now, there's. There's nothing really earth-shattering coming about in the next month or two. Gotcha. Six terabyte drives? Uh, <laughs> I would not. Personally, my opinion is you should stay away from There's a six, there's an eight, and there's a 10 terabyte. Uh, my personal opinion is I've seen all kinds of problems from four and up. I would try to avoid them. If you know, Don't try to go for the biggest space just because there's 10 terabyte out there. Think about safety, and in my opinion, you should probably still be looking at trying to stay with, you know, two terabyte drives if you can, because there are so many problems with, you know, Seagate three terabytes. You know, there's some Western Digital problems. Certainly, you know, four, six, eight, and ten are extremely dangerous drives right now, and there's incredible amounts of failure out there from the people who are buying them. And so, I am personally going to stay away from them. I'm not in any hurry. I would feel much better about having a RAID array and storing a larger, uh, you know, larger amounts of data on multiple drives instead of one. So that's my personal feeling right now. And so you can take it for what it's worth. But if you're buying, you know, six terabyte, eight terabyte, and ten terabyte drives, I should, I would just caution you right away. Uh, buy. What are you going to back them up to? Because if you have that much space what are you going to back that up to if you end up using all of that space as well? So um, I would say safety first as opposed to the possibility of losing everything. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I can't remember if I learned this from you years ago or if I if it's just always been my rule of thumb. But I, I remember a time when, you know, one terabyte drives had first come out and I kind of stuck my sweet point was a 500 gig at the time. And then, you know, it went to a point where, you know, two terabyte drives were, you know, they were coming out and I kind of stuck to the one terabyte drives. And it was just it was late last year that I actually moved to a two terabyte drive because I figured with the threes and the fours that were coming out, I'm like, all right, that's kind of the, the sweet mid spot where I feel comfortable. The, you know, they've been out for such a long period of time and hopefully I'll have, you know, some better luck with those. I don't know that it has anything to do with how long they've been out. Certainly they fixed some firmware problems along the way, but I mean, there's huge amounts of deaths in drives right now. And like I said, the six terabytes, once you're moving from six, eight, and because then you're moving into new technologies that are completely different. So they're talking to, you know, they're using helium, they're doing uh, shingle, <laughs> shingled, shingled storage. So, you know, we have a huge amount of things that, that are happening in that process. And I'm just going to say, I, I don't trust it. I see a ton of problems and just huge lists of failures. And so the expense isn't worth it from that standpoint either. Um, and, and most of the time, depending on what you're putting on that data, like, you know, unless you just are trying to do video production or something, but in that case, you should buy two or three of these systems so that you could do cascading backups. Because trust me, it's going to go. Right. And now we're heading into a category where it may be even somebody like me doing data recovery that, you know, getting 10 terabytes back is going to be an incredible feat. And so, you know, I'm definitely going to have to be reconsidering, you know, what my fees are, what I'm doing, how much it's going to cost. And, you know, to you, fine. You know, the drive is, you know, $600. That doesn't mean anything, but it's going to mean something when I tell you it's going to be $5,000 to get that recovery back. Right, right. No, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, we are getting to that point where, 
yeah, as these drives get bigger, obviously things, you know, cost to get that information and time and everything are going to become, yeah. Time yeah. time is an incredible problem right now yeah. doing the recovery because I can fix the drive. I can start getting the data back, but then to copy it to something to give to you, copying six terabytes of data is not, you know, an overnight task anymore. No, no. Yeah, and it, it and a lot of people don't, you know, I, I mean, I know because I, I keep, you know, a, a good portion of data you know, a couple terabytes. And I know even moving that takes, you know, quite a good period of time, but I just, yeah, it's going <laughs> to. Well, and everybody says the same thing about the cloud, you know, well, let's go use the cloud, do whatever, try to recover 10 terabytes from the cloud. Yeah. I mean, that's your, you know, times are changing. That might be a good backup solution because it doesn't matter how long it takes for your stuff to get out there, but it will matter how long it takes for your stuff to get back. So if you're working on, you know, video production and trying to do something, it's going to be a huge undertaking. But I, I just think people are just too gung ho to jump the gun and say, oh, well, you know, all right, there's a 10 terabyte on the shelf. Let's go buy it. Right. And that's, you know, it's, it's maybe it's so you can say to your friends, oh, yes, I'm better than you. I have this. You know, <laughs> super nice, you know, whatever hard drive. And of course I'm just going to laugh because it means nothing to me, but right. You know, I, I'd much rather have a bunch of independent storage that's offline storing long-term stuff. So if you're talking about online storage, you know, the majority of stuff that people have is literally, you know, 10 years of your life could probably fit into, uh, you know, a hundred gigs except for photos and videos. And right. then those, you should just back those up on, you know, duplicate, Equipment or Raider Race. Right. No, it, it's funny you say that because I, I don't think I've ever bragged about my hard drive, but I will brag about my video card. Other than that, I, <laughs> I don't know what there is to brag about. Ooh, I've got a lot of storage. It doesn't matter. Do I have enough, you know, area to keep my stuff in, you know, enough, uh, enough places to put my video games or, you know, photos and videos and all that kind of stuff. As long as I have that, I'm, you know, I'm perfectly happy. Well, <laughs> it's still a pretty big thing for people to be like, um, yeah, I have 40 terabytes of storage. Like, I mean, that's still a common thing. I guess I kind of hear. Mm. And, you know, now if you could buy 10 terabyte drives, 40 terabytes of storage probably was, isn't going to be a lot. But, you know, when you're talking about, you know, massive rate arrays out there that are, uh, you know, 27 terabyte RAID arrays, uh, th those are still pretty large when you're considering them. I mean, I have a 24 terabyte RAID. The problem is when something goes wrong, if you have to rebuild it, even if it's just like, for instance, if you're running a Linux server that has 27 terabytes and you have to run, you know, uh, you know, any kind of repair or boot process that it checks the drive, it takes two days. Right. Okay. Wow. Yeah. See, that's a long time. And, and like you said, a lot of the, a lot of times people will have, you know, videos and things that they're working on that they need like right now. And, uh, that, you know, that can definitely slow somebody down. Storage problems. Uh, of course it's yeah. a, what, what do they call that? This is a, a first world problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I guess. I mean, uh, you know, we all have taxes to pay, so. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, Scott, I appreciate you, uh, you coming out and sharing with us today. And uh, what what kinds of stuff do you have going on right now? And, you know, where can people reach you at? Um, so myharddrivedied.com. That's the best place to reach me at. And uh, I have some upcoming classes. I have a class in uh, Washington, D.C. at the end of this month, uh, the end of February. So I, I usually have a class in Washington, D.C. about every six months or so. So if anybody just watches the site, they'll know 
when there's an upcoming class. And then I usually have an Atlanta class on the alternate months. And then I go to Australia and I teach in Australia. So, uh, so I have a trip to Australia coming up in April. And then in between, I'm just doing, you know, I got some court cases and testifying and working on some forensics cases. But, uh, but I'm happy to answer any questions or do anything I can. If somebody hits my site, sends me a message. Um, and then I have, you know, some distance learning kits and stuff to teach people how to do some of this stuff uh, and a data recovery class that's a distance learning kit. And you're welcome to go online and, and buy that uh, from myharddrivedive.com. Excellent. Yeah, I've looked at your stuff. I'm, I'm definitely going to do that uh, one of these days. Uh, definitely. It just, it intrigues me all the stuff, the, the deep insides of the, you know, the hard drives and, and what you do. It's just fascinating to me. <clears throat> well, everything that we talked about today, like sitting there and going through the drive in hacks, I do all that in class. So I teach everybody how, you know, to look at it, understand what it is. And, you know, you don't have to manually reassemble that, but when you know what it is, you can figure that out. So that's kind of the, the whole crux of the matter is rather than just letting some program automatically tell you something, what do you do when that doesn't work? Right, right. Excellent. Very cool. All right. Well, I, again, just appreciate you coming out and sharing with us today. And hopefully, uh, maybe uh, one of these times when we, you know, if we don't have a, a lot of emails and stuff like that, we can not not specific forensics cases, but just talk about forensics in general. I think a lot of people would be interested in that type of that that topic there. Perfect. So, Happy to do it. Cool. All right. Well, if you guys have any questions, you can also email us at mhdd at podnets.com. And if you want to leave a voicemail, call one eight 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 or one eight 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 six nine seven zero one six two. We'll definitely play that on the air. And you guys, if you can leave us a rating and review over on iTunes. That'll help more people know about the show and get this great information that Scott's sharing with us. You guys can also help support the Podnets Network. Next time you're shopping at Amazon, go to podnets.com slash Amazon. And I want to thank everyone for listening and subscribing to the show. We'll see you next time on My Hard Drive Died. Music provided by Steve Cherubino at stevecherubino.com.